looked at him and I said, John, what you're feeling is part of you, not the result of something in the outside world affecting you. This really caught his attention. And at first he had quite a scared look, but then he began to joke with me. Knowing that his main defense against feeling was acting like a good old boy, this was coming out in his joking. So I looked at him and I told him with a serious but soft voice, this isn't the time for joking or humor, John. Welcome to In Contact with the ACO, hosted by Dr. Chris Burrett. This presentation features the care of a patient by one of the ACO doctors who practices a different kind of psychiatry. There is a new case presented live each month at the ACO campus located in Princeton, New Jersey. Each podcast episode is from the recording of a presentation. These are real patients, but their privacy is protected. If you're interested in attending, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at adifferentkindofpsychiatry.com. In this episode, Dr. Phil Heller discusses the care of John, a man with manic depression who developed panic and who needed help to stop masking his feelings. John was a 45-year-old married skilled carpenter from South Carolina. He was referred to me by his psychiatrist who was moving away at the time. John's long history of manic and severe episodes was marked by numerous serious suicide attempts requiring hospitalizations. These included attempts at gassing himself with carbon monoxide and drug overdoses. When I first saw John, he was maintained on large doses of multiple medications that are considered, for the most part, pretty standard treatment for bipolar disorder, also known as manic depressive illness. I saw very early on with John that the major way he defended against deep and strong emotions was to act like a good old boy from South Carolina, joking and kidding around. We agreed after meeting a few times to a judicious taper of his medications to avoid some of the problematic side effects he was having. During this initial period, uh, I met with him every week for about two months, and he remained pretty stable with slowly lowering his medications and didn't have much trouble with mood changes. He wasn't seen regularly in therapy after a few months, but he called occasionally when troubled, came in for a few sessions, and obtained relief from what he referred to as our friendship, which was our relationship as a doctor and patient, an alliance that he and I had developed. John called me one Saturday night, which was very unusual for him. He reported to me that he was feeling really shaky inside. He said he was swinging back and forth in between feeling depressed and crying, and then at the other end, expansive and well, but also he had suffered and experienced a panic attack for the first time that afternoon. Speaking to him on the phone, I told him that I prescribed 
prescription of some minor tranquilizer to help calm him down, talked to him for a while, tried to get him a little bit calmer, less racing around, and asked him to call me the next day, which he did. And when he called me, he said he felt somewhat better, but he was still crying. But what was striking about the phone call, he said he was beginning to feel confused about why he was not able to figure out why he felt so depressed. So we arranged to meet the next day. When John walked into my office, he had a really worried look on his face. I could feel how shaky he was just when he walked into the room. Without joking or being what I referred to before as the good old boy, he sat down, looked at me, and said, I don't know what's wrong. I've never felt this down. I called you because I want help. I don't want to kill myself. I asked John if he was cry, uh, fighting off in some way, crying, because it looked that way to me. And he said yes. I looked at him and I said, John, what you're feeling is part of you, not the result of something in the outside world affecting you. This really caught his attention. And at first, he had quite a scared look as a re reaction to what I said. But then he began to joke with me. Knowing that his main defense against feeling was acting like a good old boy, this was coming out in his joking. So I looked at him and I told him with a serious but soft voice, this isn't the time for joking or humor, John. I could see that he was holding his breath like this, his chest expanded, really not breathing, looking scared. And he looked like a little kid that was scared. I showed him that and I suggested to him that he lie down on the treatment couch and just simply breathe. When he did, I felt drawn to hold his hand and arm as he lied there looking quite helpless and terrified. I applied some gentle pressure with my hand on his chest to help him in breathing out, exhalation, and trying to get his chest to relax. At first, this was met with resistance of muscular tension, but then he relaxed and his chest softened slightly. Tears started to well up and I could feel the pressure of his held back crying, trying to get expressed through his eyes, but he just simply couldn't let go. He said that his crying was caught in his throat. He could feel something was getting in his way. With his chest moving more and his ex exhaling his breath more, more fully, his breathing became deeper and the need to cry became even greater. I gently held his jaw open with my thumb. And just by doing that, some very deep sobbing and misery started to come out in waves. He sat up, still crying very deeply, looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said, and pardon me if it gets to me. I didn't kill her. It's not my fault. I didn't kill my grandma. I gave her a gun to protect herself. I didn't mean for her to kill herself. John's grandmother suffered 
with manic depressive illness, much like John. And he had been quite close with her. She committed suicide by shooting herself in the head when she had a bout of recurring depression. She had become fearful of yet another hospitalization and more electroconvulsive treatments. Between sobs, John said, they made me clean up the mess. This happened when John was 18 years old. Imagine, 18. Others had also directly and indirectly blamed John for her death. He said to me, I never told anybody about how I feel. I couldn't tell you until now because I needed to trust you first. I had him lie down again on the couch and he was now able to breathe deeply and fully and sighed with relief spontaneously. When he sat up, he looked at me and said, my head feels clear, I feel lighter. In manic depressive illness, the muscular holding as seen in John's chest, throat, and mouth is unstable and consequently makes patients especially prone to a disruption in their functioning based on the instability of this holding. Such individuals tend to emotionally expand and become manic when the muscular holding loosens, but then they contract and become depressed when the muscular holding returns. That's a, a sign of in an unstable tension that either holds or lets go. When depressed, these patients have a strong need to maintain a close connection with their therapist. In fact, that's certainly the basis for his unusual call on a Saturday night. This brief report illustrates treatment of an acutely unstable patient with bipolar illness. Not only was hospitalization and increased doses of medication avoided, but more significantly, long buried emotional trauma was expressed by the patient, giving him great relief. Wow, what a horrible situation for a young man to go through. I'm glad he was finally able to talk about it with Dr. Heller, but more importantly, express his misery and finally get some relief after all those years. This 10 minute clip touches on so many points. The importance of developing a trusting doctor-patient relationship, limitations of medication for panic, a psychiatrist's need to truly understand the patient's problem and characteristic way of handling his emotions, physically and psychologically. I want to play part of what Dr. Heller said during the intro for his live presentation. He said it well. A psychiatric emergency is a frightening experience, and when it happens, can be dangerous, can have psychotic behavior and even sometimes ending in a suicide. Such emergencies are routinely managed by immediate hospitalization and there's no question that this is a safe practice and wise. However, this means of treatment is not always necessary nor best for the patient. If the psychiatrist has made an accurate diagnosis understands his patient and has the patient's trust, he may be able to avoid 
both hospitalization and treatment that relies almost exclusively on medication. This story is about a patient I saw years ago, and he stands out in my mind very clearly. I've lost touch with him many years ago, but uh, has a special place in my memory. But what do you think? Is this how you imagine panic is typically treated? How do you feel after listening to John's case? We're interested in your questions and comments. You can connect with us at a psychiatry.com. If you like our work, be sure to leave a favorable rating. Find more episodes at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Be sure to check out our next episode, which features Dr. Crest discussing the treatment of a young man whose self-destructive who-cares attitude was reinforced by his use of marijuana. Dr. Christ addresses the marijuana use without getting lost in the morality of good or bad, but simply addressing how it affects his patient's emotional functioning and subsequently his school performance, athletics, and relationships. I said to him, you talk about these important things as if you're trying to decide whether to drink a Pepsi or a Coke. What's that about? I just don't show much emotion. Why do I need to? I'm a logical person. My mom gets so caught up in her emotions that she can't react rationally. I sure as hell don't want to be irrational and emotional like her. He continued to come to sessions and bit by bit talked about more of what he felt. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Ergonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward, often without the use of medication. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO.